0: Welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. I'm the Bill Arnold part of that short sentence. And it is now time for Sunburnt Series. We're going to continue today. Dr. Peter Kapschner is in studio with me. Peter, that was a fantastic last half hour we did. No, Thank the, you it, for that. It
1: was You just set that up beautifully. It was great.
0: But now it's uh, our sunburnt Series, which is a little bit random. We don't ever know exactly what we're going to talk about, but that's the fun of it. It's kind of a little mixture of all kinds of topics.
1: It is, and this topic came a little later in the day to us. But boy, is it a riveting topic that we're going to cover it's be it for great. sure, yeah. only
0: because of our guest. Yes, for our, sure, our guest. Our guest is amazing, and we love Daryl B. Harrison. He's a native of Atlanta, but he lives in California now, and he's the dean of social media at Grace to You, and he is also the fellow of the is uh, two thirty, I am sorry, twenty thirteen fellow of the Black Theology and Leadership Institute um, at Princeton Theological Seminary. Daryl, welcome.
2: Bill Arnold, Peter, how are you guys doing? Oh, man? Li- how li- y'all doing? We're living it up. <laughs> we are now with you, Daryl. I got to tell you, you know, here, Darryl, I ya. <laughs> <laughs> you know uh, Bill, I can't come on your show, man, without telling you and reminding you that whenever I hear that intro music, man, from Fleetwood Mac, I know exactly where I am. <laughs> yeah, I know exactly where I am because no, no other show anywhere, radio, TV, or any other medium uses that bumper music, man. Yeah. So it, it, I always know where I am when I hear that. Great, you know, it's a good landing. For me back. it's a good landing place. We're uh, we're glad
0: you can be with us, and we always look forward to having you on. And we we just we love you. So thanks for doing this. I know you're busy as always, but uh, I know you've got some reflections of coming off the Fourth of July that we're very looking forward to talking about.
2: Awesome. Well, listen, no need to thank me. The pleasure is all mine to be with you, brothers. Thanks. I really uh, love you guys as well, and it's always an opportunity. Whenever I get an email from Rosie. Uh, I immediately smile, you guys are are so near and dear to me. So I I love you all. Thank you so much.
0: So, um, let's talk about the, the sort of one of the, the proverbial, uh, horse that gets beaten every 4th of July that, you know, America is not perfect.
2: Yeah. So, uh, that obviously comes from a a blog article that I wrote over the 4th of July weekend and, uh, interesting backstory on how that blog article came to be, um, I was at my in my home office at home at my desk. I was doing some reading and I was trying to draft a tweet. I was I was going to say something about what I ended up saying in an entire blog article. I was going to try to say that in one tw- one tweet, but I struggled to <laughs> get the words together. You know, because on Twitter you're limited as to the number of characters that can fit into one tweet. So that one tweet turned into an entire article. Um so that's how the blog article came to be. It actually started out as a single tweet that I was trying to write. Um, but in partnership with my friends at G3 Ministries with Dr. Josh Bice, Dr. Scott Aniel and my good friend and Justin Podcast co-host Virgil Walker, um, when I saw that my thoughts were gonna be more prolonged than just a two hundred and what sixty something character tweet, I reached out to Virgil and I said, Hey, um I'm doing this article. I said, it's unplanned. Um, I said, I know it's Saturday, but but if I finish this thing today, would you guys be able to publish it on your website? They said, absolutely. Uh, get it to us. And uh, so I kept writing. And this is something that's been sort of gnawing at me the past several years. Uh, it's just predictable that every 4th of July, especially as we get deeper into this sort of milieu uh, in America of wokeness, social justice now. You're also dealing with uh, Marxist ideology, communist ideology. Every Fourth of July is an opportunity for folks who sort of either are on the edge of those worldviews or who buy into them wholeheartedly to come out and bash the United States for uh, being systemically racist and other faults and sins, they sort of resurrect and try to re-prosecute those um, sins and faults and and errors every 4th of July. And one way that they do that is they, again, just predictably they go back in history and they grab a speech that uh, the abolitionist educator and and former slave himself, Frederick Douglass uh, gave back in 1852 a speech that's titled what to the slave is the 4th of July. So it is sort of a play on words on how Douglas titled his speech. I titled my blog article, what to the never enslaved is the 4th of July. Mm -hmm. And my rationale behind that title is, is that every year, every 4th of July, you've got people who were never slaves, never, ever, never slaves, never experienced slavery, trying to, inculcate the milieu that Douglas was addressing 170 years ago into present-day America. Um, so the title is a little bit of a facetious, sort of sarcastic way to make a point. And what I tried to do in the article is take verbiage, wording, phrases from some of Douglas's other speeches, um, because that's not the only speech he ever gave. That speech— in 1852, where he was rightly—and I say this in the article—Douglas was rightly critical of America at that time. Mm-hmm. But again, that's at that time. That's 170 years ago. Those—the wrongs that Douglas was addressing—what, nearly 175 years ago—have been addressed in law. They've been fixed in law. Mm-hmm. Uh, yes, it took longer than we would have liked. Um, but it's hypocritical for um, for for people, especially some black liberal Americans, to just selectively pick out Fourth of July as a you know sort of a dog pile on the rabbit uh, treatment of America when America, in reality, is light years from what it was socially, culturally, politically. Um, from what it was uh, 170 years ago, so I took an opportunity to leverage Douglas's own words and other speeches that he's given to offer a counter commentary to that narrative.
0: And you did a great job. Uh, just so you know, um, let's uh, let's talk more about uh, the the position that Douglas took uh, in 1852 and some of the things that you drew out of that that speech.
2: Yes, yeah, so Douglas, as many of your listeners may know, Frederick Douglass was born a slave. He was actually born a slave uh, uh, not under that name. So his given name was Frederick Augustus Washington Bailey. Um, he actually took the surname Douglass uh, from his first marriage. His, uh, the, the woman he met and married, her surname was Douglass, uh, but he chose to go uh, by Frederick Douglass from that point on. So Frederick Douglass was born a slave. Um, And one of the things that uh, uh, if you read the autobiography of Frederick Douglass, which I commend to all your listeners, uh, Bill, Douglass said in his autobiography uh, that when he was a slave, he said, um, um, and and this is one of the most profound things I've ever heard anyone say, he said, I prayed for 20 years, but I received no answer until I prayed with my legs. So what Douglass is saying there is that he was not some sort of pacifist. He, he came to realize that if I'm going to be fr- uh, free ever from my physical change, then I'm going to have to take action myself. I'm going to have to take responsibility for my own uh, freedom. Um, and that's what you see him uh, articulate in uh, some of the citations that I make in the blog article. Now, but now as I said earlier, Frederick Douglass as were countless abolitionists who supported him abolitionists who were black abolitionists who were white um and 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 may, maybe your listeners may not be aware but some of Frederick Douglass's most ardent supporters both ideologically and financially were white abolitionists um so this was a partnership that wasn't uh uh, uh th- th- this was a partnership this is what this, this wasn't something that was exclusive to Frederick Douglass. But as I said, Frederick Douglass in his 1852 speech rightly criticized what he called American hypocrisy for not living up to its constitutional values and treating black people as equal to white people. Slavery was um, a, a, a very entrenched reality. In 1852, America. And what we have to remember, too, is when Douglas gave this speech, America as a nation was only, um, uh, what, 70 years old. wasn't even 70 years old at the time. So America was a very, very young nation. Um, and Douglas, and the more you read about Frederick Douglas, the more you'll find out he was as much a theologian as he was an abolitionist or a politician, or an educator. In many of his speeches, Douglass would refer to scripture as the objective truth as, uh, upon which his idea of uh, racial equality was rooted. Um, so like I do in the article, I readily acknowledge that Douglas was absolutely right in calling America the task, to put it mildly, for its uh, its uh, sociocultural hypocrisy. As he would describe it. But again, that was 1852. That is not the America of 2022.
0: Mm hmm. Daryl B. Harrison is our guest, and we are enjoying Sunburned Series. Dr. Peter Capson and I are so glad to have uh, Daryl on the show. Uh, his article is up at G3MIN.org. What to the Never Enslaved is the Fourth of July? We're getting some reflections on an article he wrote over the weekend, and we'll take a short break and be right back with Daryl in just a minute. Thank you. Welcome back to the Sunburnt series. We've got Daryl B. Harrison as our guest today. And during the break, uh, Daryl, Peter was saying that he would like to read a part of Frederick Douglas's speech, and then he's got a question for you. And- he just, sure, he, just wants, he wants to get involved today. Yeah, that's, that's <laughs> this, feeling, is, this is my token feeling, involvement, yeah, So
1: we got to make this count at this point. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead, Peter. Act involved. Uh, so, you you, you tease out, or pull out this quote from um, Douglas's speech, and it says that uh, Douglas saying, "If I had the nation's ear, I would today pour out a fiery stream of biting ridicule, blasting reproach, withering sarcasm, and stern rebuke." For it is not light that is needed, but fire. It's not the gentle shower, but thunder. We need the storm, the whirlwind, and the earthquake. And, you know, Darrell, that feels a bit like the energy that we see around us today as people are responding to their perceptions of their own circumstances. But it sounds like what you're saying is that maybe back then this is the kind of energy we needed, but uh, we live in very different circumstances today.
2: Yeah, Peter, that's a great point, and um, I'm glad you cited that particular uh, part of Douglass' uh, speech, What to the Slave is the Fourth of July, because if you continue on in that section of the speech, what Douglass is appealing to is the universal law of God. He's he's appealing to uh, general revelation. He's, re- he's, re- he's appealing to God's common grace to every man. Uh, Douglass goes on to say in that particular section of his speech— he says that the feeling of the nation must be quickened. The conscience of the nation must be roused. The propriety of the nation must be startled. The hypocrisy of the nation must be exposed. And he ends with this, and it's crimes against God and man must be proclaimed and denounced. Uh, I think that's not an insignificant point that Douglass is making there. The order of those words are very important. Douglas said that slavery was, first of all, a crime against God. Not against men. I think what we have now um, in 2022, America, uh, you had all the um, aesthetics, if you will, uh, such as what Douglas mentioned in his 1852 speech. So you have people today who would argue, well, the feeling of the nation must be quickened. The conscience of the nation must be roused. The propriety of the nation must be startled. The hypocrisy of the nation must be exposed. But in what con- context or construct are they appealing to that today? Uh, they are appealing to a subjective definition, a subjective paradigm of all those things. So when you talk about a nation's conscience, what are you talking about? We have in America today. What close to 370 million people, uh, give or take 10 million. Uh, so so and and, and and among that number. How many differences of opinion will you get when you ask the question, well, what is the nation's conscience today? What, what would you say the nation's, how would you define the nation's sociocultural conscience? Upon what precepts or, or principles is that conscience built? And uh, I, I, I feel confident in saying that you would not get many responses to that question that would align with what Douglas was arguing. Uh, in 1852, uh, that we need to appeal to universal truths that we all know. Uh, And this is kind of where I was going earlier before the break when I mentioned that Douglass was as much a theologian as he was an abolitionist. Um, Douglass knew his Bible. He knew Genesis 127. He knew the doctrine of the Imago Day. He knew that regardless of the color of your skin, every single human being that's ever been created has been created in the image of God. And that on that universal truth, slavery should fall. But today you have everyone and his brother or sister has their own agenda. You've got Black Lives Matters with their Black Lives Matter with their own agenda. You've got the LGBTQ movement with their own agenda. You've got politicians and uh, other such leaders with their own agenda wanting to take the nation into disparate and separate directions. Uh, so unlike where Douglas was trying to move the nation uh, under the banner of an objective, universal, biblical truth, um, thus far... Uh, From what we see today, you you see just sort of a sort of a a collage of ideologies, philosophies, all engaged in a a tug of war to pull America into their uh, subjective direction.
1: Do you see any sort of pathway, Daryl, in which we could be united in the social consciousness or are we just so fragmented that that becomes impossible moving forward?
2: Yeah, I, I don't want to sound like a pessimist here, Peter, but I think the latter part of your question is more the reality. I think we have people today who are trying to create heaven on earth. I think that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to create heaven on earth, and, and everybody's got their own definition and their own sort of purview of, uh, or construct of what heaven looks like. That's exactly what we have here. And when you have a, a a nation comprised of people who are trying to create heaven on earth as opposed to settling for heaven being after this life, when you have a group of people or groups of people trying to create their own distinct heaven on earth, you're not going to have unity because you can, there's no such thing ideolog- ideologically as multiple heavens. Hmm. Uh, that's, that's just not logical. Uh, but that's what we have in America today, whether it's politically, socially, culturally, ethnically. Um, you can split it and divide it any way you want. Um, Unless we have, as Frederick Douglass had, a a one-track mind whereby the the changes that he wanted to see in America 170 years ago were grounded in one firm, objective truth, and that was the truth of Scripture. And until we get there, we're going to continue to be divided. I like that. Gerald,
0: does the United States get singled out over other nations uh, for their participation in the in the slave trade? Yes. To, to
2: mm-hmm. give you a one word answer, Bill, yes. And I, I argue that point in the blog article that you know every Fourth of July, America is the most egregious offender as a, with respect to the transatlantic slave trade. Um, and if I could get technical here for just a moment um i've studied the slave trade for years i've 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 mentioned before either here or on my podcast with virgil um if you if if any of your listeners uh bill and peter were were ever to visit my office here at grace to you in valencia california um and you were to to sort of peruse my library of book i've got more books here on slavery than any other topic outside of theology i've studied slavery for years um And it may surprise your listeners to know um, that if you were to list the top 10 nations that participated in the transatlantic slave trade over the entirety of the 450 years, um, that that trade was in place. Uh, Now, America, which didn't become actually a nation until 1776, So, so I'm going to use America as a nation uh, just for for the sake of conversation, but if you list the top ten nations who uh, engaged in the transatlantic slave trade over that 450 years, where would you rank? What do you think America would rank? Yeah, I mean, it seems just like number one on the, for just, sure, right? Just based on just based on the narrative that you hear. Yeah, number, number one, one. It's not America. close. Yeah, and it's not right. close. So, so so just based on the narrative that you hear, you would say America was number one. Absolutely. But if you were to list the top ten nations, America would be number 9 they It'd be number nine. That's a historical fact. America um, America wasn't even a nation until 1776, so the transatlantic slave trade was ongoing for over 300 years before America was a nation. And it was because the reason America ranks number nine— is because of the expansion of Christianity throughout the colonies. And then as, the, as America w- began to get even more settled westward, Christianity continued to expand. Churches were built. Christian schools were opened. This is why slavery did not have the impact in America or North America that it had in other nations. And in case your listeners are curious, the number one country, the, the country that had more slaves offloaded from West Africa on the foreign shores than any other nation was Brazil now your list was probably some of them may have drank Brazilian coffee this morning now is that any reason to stop drinking Brazilian coffee no, and this is the point that I'm making in the article eighteen fifty two America is not twenty twenty two America uh, some of the same people who are criticizing America for its minimal role in slavery, and that's not to minimize slavery when I say that, but people who are criticizing America for their minimal, their relatively minimal role in the slave trade probably vacation in nations that participated exponentially more than America did. Mm-hmm. People listening to me now, right now, probably at vacation in Jamaica, Bermuda, the Caribbean. South America, countries like Brazil, those nations and and those countries offloaded millions of slaves over the course of the 450 years of the transatlantic slave trade, whereas in America, over 450 years, less than 300,000 slaves landed on North American soil. But if you you pay attention to the narrative, especially on holidays like July 4th, America was the number one villain. Mm. According to, but factually,
0: that's not true. Yeah. Fascinating. That is very fascinating. Well, Peter and I are not going to stop drinking Brazilian coffee because we can't afford it in the first place. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> We'd have to start. We'd we we, we have, have to start, start. Yes. yeah. So we, we're just fine with our folders. All right. We'll take a break. We'll come back. Lots more with Daryl B. Harrison. Uh, his blog is up at G3MIN.org. g G3 3 M I N dot org. And the article is called What to the Never Enslaved is the Fourth of July? Be right back. to the show. It is sunburnt series time, and we're so uh, happy to have Daryl, our friend Daryl B. Harrison on. He is uh, originally from Georgia, but he lives in uh, the sunny uh, Valencia, California now, and he's the dean of social media at grace to You. and he, Daryl, is a 2013 fellow of the Black Theology and Leadership Institute of Princeton the- Theological Seminary, and he also... Uh, did some undergraduate study at Liberty, and he majored in psychology and Christian counseling. He's the first black man to be ordained as a deacon in the 200-year history of First Baptist Church of Covington, Georgia, where he attended from 2009 to 2015. So we're just uh, glad to have him on the show today. And, Darrell, as we move back into this discussion, um, let's chat a little bit about this um Fourth of July observance that was given on July th- from a July 3rd article by Ms. Ariel Gray. And she stated For us, black Americans, the Fourth of July remains a hollow statement, a shallow symbol of a freedom that is only a mirage for many. It remains a festivity with no substance, a celebration with no soul. And every year we are reminded that we are. While we are able to participate in the party, the party isn't for us. We are only visitors who may or may not be asked to leave once the party is over.
2: Yeah, so um, I use Ms. Gray's um, article, which she published on July 3rd, 2019, as sort of a springboard into the thesis that I want to present, an ultimate uh, perspective that I want to uh, present for Consideration by those who um, happen to read uh, my article. What Ms. Gray, respect, respectfully, is doing here is she is basically regurgitating a narrative that uh, many black Americans do annually on uh, Independence Day here in America. Now, I don't know Ms. Gray, I've never met her, I've never spoken with her. But I do, um, in doing my research, I did go to a website for her employer where they have a, a photo of her uh, posted there, and she looks in that photo as if she's not even 30 years old. Mm. Um, and, and, and one of the things I find problematic about um, Black Americans, especially young Black Americans uh, like Miss Gray, is that they, they want to uh, appropriate for themselves uh, the, the the suffrage that people like Frederick Douglass actually went through, they want to appropriate that, that type of suffrage for themselves. Now, uh, Frederick Douglass didn't have Twitter. Uh, Frederick Douglass didn't have uh, a blog site. He didn't have the Internet. He didn't have uh, iPhones and cellular service. He didn't have, uh, uh, you know, Grubhub or uh, Uber Eats. You know, he didn't have any of that. Uh, and yet we have uh, – uh Young black people today who have uh, had the uh, uh had afforded to them the opportunity to uh, go to college uh earn multiple degrees in certain cases um, have well paying jobs comfortable uh lifestyles for themselves as well as their children if they have children uh and yet here you have Miss ariel gray uh saying that, yeah, while we're able to participate in the party, the party isn't for us. Well, the party is for you. The party is for you. Your own success demonstrates that the party is for you. So when you look at um, the reality of how um, uh, people like her have been able to uh, uh, be accomplished in America of their own right, she's actually a living contradiction. She's a living, breathing contradiction of her own words. Um, and if I had an opportunity to ask Miss Gray, when she says we are only visitors who may or may not be asked to leave once the party's over, well, the way she talks, she will will want to leave. um so she she's she's uh we she, really look closely at what she's saying. It's very contradictory um, of uh, of uh, her words are contradictory to the the life she's been afforded uh, by God's grace to be able to live here. Um, And my saying that is not so much to put America on a pedestal, but if I could just sort of encapsulate the point I'm trying to make with one verse of Scripture, I want to point your listeners to Acts 17, verse 26, where it says, And he made, that is, God made from one man, that man being Adam, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitations. So, well, the, the Christian worldview of this issue is to recognize the sovereignty of God, the providence of God, in determining, predetermining where you will be born and when and under what circumstances. Um, Ms., Ms. Gray would do well, I say with all humility, she would do well to go and read some of Frederick Douglass's other speeches. Um, um, and, and, and I think she would be surprised to learn that despite the shortcomings, the faults, the sins, the failures of 1852 America, as Douglas rightly pointed out, Douglas was never anti American. Never. He was never, ever anti American. He lauded America for the idea that it was. He understood that uh, by God's grace, America was a very unique nation and that it was in America that black people had the best opportunity to succeed. Um, so I would challenge Ms. Gray to expand her scope of, um, of uh, trying to understand Frederick Douglass more and not to just single out. This one speech, which she, in, in her case, I think is very respected, respectfully, she is, uh, placing before, uh, uh, an audience in the article that she published three years ago in a misdirected context.
1: Hmm. Daryl, if you were in a sociology class at just a local university, they would probably teach, uh, something called opportunity structure, meaning that. Uh, just on the basis of somebody's skin color or gender, they have more or less opportunity at the start of life. Maybe some people start at the zero, some people start at the fifty-yard line, some mm-hmm. people start at the negative fifty-yard line. Um, what would you say about that? And just using then uh, Miss Ariel Gray as the context, let's say she is roughly—I just googled her picture, like you had said—and she, let's say she's roughly twenty-five years old. Does she have um, the same sort of starting point that somebody like me might have as
2: a as a white male? Um, She may not, but again, I think the, I think that idea, what would you call it again, Peter? Opportunity? opportunity, That's my understanding.
1: Yeah. Like the structure of somebody's opportunity just in terms of, yeah. yeah, Do they have the same levels of opportunity as other people do?
2: Yeah. Yeah. No. And they're not supposed to. They're not supposed to. Hmm. Um, Again, um, you you gentlemen know this already. Um, um, What I try to do in my writing and we try to do this. First of all, I try to do this on our, on the Just Thinking podcast. We try to bring our listeners, especially because our target audience is the church, our target audience is to believers. I'm writing to believers first and foremost, and unbelievers second. Uh, what we try to do is to challenge you to have a b- biblical worldview of these issues. And the reason I say that well, perhaps um, Ms. Gray didn't start uh, at the same yard line as as you would as you may have started, Peter, or you may have started, Bill, but who's to say that that was supposed to happen? When we look at Matthew chapter five, verse forty-five, we see where the scripture teaches that uh, um, God causes His Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. Um, and we know from the Old Testament that God says, "I'm going to be merciful to whom I choose to have mercy on." So uh, the, the 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 fallacy of an idea like that being taught in a sociology class is that the definition of a yard line is subjective. Well, who gets to define what the yard line is? Um, where, where, whereby, what my Bible tells me that that again, the circumstances in which into which you are born were uh, preordained by a sovereign God who placed you in that situation. I think there's a there's a there's, there's a misunderstanding about, uh, the world and then the societies in general, that the goal of a society is to make sure everyone is on the same playing field. And that's not even, uh, uh that's wrong, but that's not even logical. Um, j- just to even think about it, how can you have, and I meant to say this in the article, but I, I, I left it out to, to have, uh, to have that kind of, uh, 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 equal playing field, uh, where everybody starts on the same yard line. Um, just imagine what that would look like. There's got to be there, there's there, there's there's got to be inequality in in order for society to function. There's got to be some degree of inequality. Now you don't want that. What we don't want is for that in- inequality to come about by by virtue of the sin of partiality. That's what we don't want. We, we, we want equity. We want equity. To, equity means that everyone gets what they deserve for, for better or worse, for good or ill. You get what you deserve. But what you don't want, you don't want, uh, you don't want, because on the other end of the scale, to force or coerce equality is a sin. That's mm-hmm. partiality. So for me to take from the person who uh, uh, was born on the 50-yard line, for me to take from them, and give it to the person who was born in the 10-yard line, that's a sin. And and, and I don't care if I—you you can call it equality or whatever you want to call it. In God's eyes, that's a sin, because in, in God's economy, it was God who ordained that that person to be born in the 50-yard line. So who am I to say that the advantage that he or she has over me is wrong? If God preordained that circumstance, that situation for that person—
0: that's a pretty significant point you just made. Yeah, it really is. Yeah. And
1: and you know, because I think when it's, it, her comment was so stark that there's no party to which she can attend, it's all been, you know, she's missed the entire thing. I just think that you almost she, lose she's a bit of credibility. The fi- she's on the,
2: yeah. the, the 50-yard line herself. She is.
1: Mm-hmm. Indeed she is. Yeah. She's working. What, yeah. She, she has a, right. a, a well-paid job as a journalist right now.
2: well so. paid job, college degree, well paid job in one of the most expensive cities in this nation in which you, or a person could live, she's, she's on the, matter of fact, she's on the other side of the 50 yard line. She's so, she's so advantaged. She's so privileged. Let's see what people like her don't realize is that she, her, her being able to even complain gives her an advantage over other people. So the person on the five or 10 yard line, they, they don't even have the means to even complain. In such a way as to get her voice, as she did, Miss Gray, has had her article read by, I don't know, at a minimum, thousands of people, maybe even millions. So she she's at an advantage by saying, she has the temerity to say that, uh, to not recognize the advantage she has of saying, uh, that, of complaining about people who are at a disadvantage. She's at an advantage herself. Like I said, she's just a living contradiction of what she's arguing here.
0: Hmm. So wise. Daryl, we're going to go to break, but I've got one question from a listener I'd like to ask you. And the question is this, regarding the number of slaves who came from Africa to America, does that include slaves coming directly from West Africa only? Would America rank higher if the number included slaves who came to America via the West Indies? Got it. Let's talk about it. Okay, cool. Uh, do, you have, do you want to do it now? So I've got a couple of minutes.
2: You got a couple minutes? Yeah. Yeah, let's do it. Well, yeah, so that question is uh the answer is uh no. Um if you if you study the uh the uh the the, the main trade routes along the transatlantic slave mm-hmm. uh, trade, you would you would see that the vast majority of the slaves did come from West Africa. So they came from areas like uh Gambia, Guinea, Sierra Leone, the Gold Coast, Benin, Biafra, the West Central African coast. But if you look at the routes of those uh, those trade routes over that 450-year history, what you will find is that the vast – I mean, the overwhelming – probably 95 percent of the slaves that were transported out of West Africa went to the Caribbean. They didn't even get to North America. Mm. They didn't even get to North America. Most of those slaves went to the Caribbean. They went to Jamaica, Bahamas, the Spanish Caribbean, Bahamas, Jamaica – Honduras, Spanish Caribbean, and then the South America. So, if you will look at at a map, the thicker arrows would point to the Caribbean and South America. The thinnest arrows would point to North America. So, even even the even the, 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 the 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 bulk of the slaves that were traded uh, to uh, North America and South America came out of West Africa. Other areas of Africa, North Africa, Northeast Africa, those slaves were traded either within Africa or they went to the Middle East. So you didn't get slaves from the other side of Africa that went to North America and South America. Those those slaves strictly came out of West Africa. But other areas of Africa, there was uh, trading in slaves as well, as there still is. Uh, today, believe it or not. But those those slaves were traded either within Africa to tribes within Africa, uh, warring tribes within Africa, or to Middle Eastern nations. So uh, even if you use the the logic uh, that's inherent to the question that is posed, no, America would not move up. Okay. Part, so the top mm. 10, they would still be at the bottom.
0: Um, okay. Daryl B. Harrison is my guest. One thing I haven't been talking about too much at all, actually, is his, his website, JustThinking.me. It's a podcast he does with uh, Virgil Walker, and it is uh, amazing. It's great. Go to JustThinking.me to check it out. We'll be right back in a minute. be back with daryl b harrison you can uh, learn more about daryl's great podcast with virgil walker at justthinking.me and daryl i just got some nice comments from listeners um when we were talking about uh, a person maybe born on the 50 yard line maybe someone on the 10 maybe someone on the negative 50 yard line and that's the way god designed or what he had for that person um listener said, wow, such a powerful statement by Daryl. I so appreciate his biblical worldview on so many difficult topics of our time. Hmm.
2: But I Well, Thank you very much, and I, I appreciate that listener recognizing that these are very difficult topics. Mm-hmm. These aren't easy topics to navigate through. However, I think we can have confidence as Christians that God's Word does have answers for us for these problems and these issues. Well,
0: just so you know, Peter and I can take even a simple topic and make it difficult. <laughs> so... <laughs> So I don't with wanna... relative ease. We make it look easy, though. We do make we it look easy. We do make it look really easy. Uh, yeah, yeah. But um, su- such an interesting uh, point you made there, all about the way God ordains things. So I appreciate that. Yeah, yeah.
2: Peter. The, uh, you, you know, one of my—I uh, I would say—if you, if you pin me in a corner, this may—this uh, verse I'm about to quote may be—I uh, mean, it's right up there as far as my favorite Bible verse, and it's Ecclesiastes seven fourteen which in the uh, New American Standard Translation says, in the day of prosperity, be happy. But in the day of adversity, remember that God has created the one as well as the other. So I I mentioned that verse, Bill and Peter, because I think uh, when it comes to um, uh, a Romans 828 situation, okay, God works all things for good, I think we're more inclined to – um, accept the idea that God is sovereign, that God is providential. Uh, but when it comes to, for instance, the wording that your 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 listener used there, difficult issues, we tend to be more hesitant uh, with respect to the sovereignty of God, mm-hmm. and and we like to default uh, to sort of a sentimental um, visage of God, to where we say, "Well, God couldn't." could 't have wanted that to happen you know there there, 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 there there's there's a part of us that uh, we, we, we sort of we sort of grade God on a curb. Uh, to, uh the abortion issues is, is a good example where well, God could God to ne- could never want a child born into poverty well there's a there's a universal principle of reaping and sowing whereby um, uh, oftentimes God allows us to uh, experience the consequences of our decisions. So, for uh, uh, um, God's uh, God's uh, declarative will is that we don't engage in uh, sexual fornication. That's that's God's declarative will. Now, His permissive will may be to allow us to commit a certain sin that gets us into a situation where we reap the consequences of our decisions. Um, But today, um, you know, abortion is used as a way to avoid those consequences. Uh, But we have to remember that even in the difficult times, um, God is still sovereign. God, as as Dr. R.C. Sproul used to say, there are no maverick molecules running around in God's (laughs) universe. Uh, God is in control of every single thing that occurs in his universe, and he has uh, sovereignly ordained, all those things to happen.
1: I think, uh, Daryl, America is sort of founded on the idea that there's going to be you know, opportunity provided, um, empowerment to do so, and, and I think maybe you can comment, and we don't have a ton of time left, but maybe you can comment on uh, both sides of this, where we, on one side of our mouth we say things like money and power and prestige and all of that, they can become idols really quickly, and they don't actually mm-hmm. bring happiness to the human heart, but on the other mm-hmm. side, and yet we're saying, well, people should have the opportunity to pursue all those things on equal levels. But on the flip side of it, there is basic needs for humankind too. So mm-hmm. I, this is a tricky thing, right? And I think maybe your words on God's sovereignty, and, and maybe Paul's words in Philippians about what I, I finding the secret of contentment independent of circumstances somehow fits into all of this.
2: Yeah, uh matter of fact Peter one of the messages I have a message that I give um depending on the occasion uh whenever I'm invited to a a church to uh to preach on a Sunday morning there's a message that I've titled the dangers of discontentment and I talk about that I mean I'm, I I I that that issue of discontentment is a is personally to me uh an, an issue that I hold near and dear to my heart because I'm just such a huge advocate and proponent of Uh, Christians uh, living with with the joy of the Lord in their heart every day. I I, I, I believe it is possible that the the Holy Spirit that resides within each one of us uh, has equipped us to live in the joy of the Lord with God as our focus, with Christ as our focus, with our Savior as our focus, with forgiveness of our sins as our focus, so that we can live with such joy Regardless of what the circumstances uh, might be, regardless of the situation, uh, regardless of the uh, uh, adversity that we may be facing, we have the Holy Spirit living within us, residing within us, who has equipped us to be able to live with joy. Now, that joy, okay, it's like Jesus himself said, I believe it's in John uh, chapter 14, where Jesus says, "My peace I leave with you, not as the world gives." So the joy that the Christian have is has is different from the happiness that the world can give. Now, no doubt, uh, because I think it's somewhere in, the, in one of his epistles, Paul says that God has given us all good things to enjoy. There is happiness that is derived from certain temporal enjoyments that we have in this world, temporal pleasures that we have in this world. Our children bring us joy. Our children bring us happiness. Our jobs can bring us a certain degree of satisfaction. Uh, Our spouses can bring us a certain degree of satisfaction. Uh, Reaching and exceeding certain goals and accomplishments can give us a degree of happiness and satisfaction. But that's not the joy that the Christian possesses as a result of having come to faith in Jesus Christ. That is, that is a joy that is the, that is far and beyond what this world uh, can offer us. And I think that joy, having that joy and experiencing that joy begins with acknowledging that God is sovereign over everything that he allows to occur in our life. Hmm.
0: Amen. 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 Nice uh, comment from a listener that said, no matter where we start, God pursues us continually for our own
2: good and His good purposes. Hmm. Right. It's, it's like uh, Paul says, I think it's in Philippians, where Paul says, he who began a good work in you will complete it. He will complete it. See, we struggle, though, <laughs> This, we struggle because there are certain ways that we wish God would go about completing that work. <laughs> right? We, we 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 don't want to leave the we don't want to leave the chiseling and the sawing and the hammering and the nailing up to Him. We 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 want Him to to to, to use other means and ways sometimes. But uh, that's where trusting God comes in. We just have to trust Him that He knows what He's doing.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Daryl, it's always great
0: having you on. Okay. and I love the oh, time so with good. you and thank you again for agreeing to come on the show. It's been a wonderful hour.
2: Love you, gentlemen. Y'all Love all You too,
0: Daryl. Daryl B. Harrison has been our guest. You can go to justthinking.me. And you can hear uh, Daryl uh, and Virgil's blo- uh, podcast there at justthinking.me. That's our show for today. Thanks for spending time with me and supporting Faith Radio. I've loved being with you. I'm looking forward to tomorrow. Have a great night.